from Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Wednesday, October the 28th, 2020, and uh, we have just uh, six days to go before Election Day, November 3rd. And uh, things are getting pretty tense out there. We're going to be talking in the first half hour this morning with uh, John Walters, political blogger. He has uh, the Vermont Political Observer, and uh, he's going to be filling us in on what he's been uh, writing lately and uh, and finding out about uh, what's happening with this election season here in Vermont. And then we may shift our attention as well uh, somewhat to the national scene, depending on time and so on. Uh, in the um, second half hour of today's program, we are going to be uh, talking with uh, UVM uh, Medical Center Dr. Kristen Pierce about the uh, that hospitals being selected uh, as the hub of a regional our, our region's uh, participation in a phase three vaccine trial uh, for uh, a coronavirus vaccine being developed by the uh, uh, pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca, and uh, we'll find out from Kristen Pe- Dr. Kristen Pierce uh, about. Uh, that uh, that that UVM is uh, talking about being honored by being selected. Uh, it sounds like a pretty big deal. We'll be finding out about it from Dr. Pierce in the second half hour of this morning's program. Uh, later on, there are lots of legal questions swirling around the upcoming election. Will there be efforts to stop the counting at some point, uh, b- maybe before all the ballots are counted and things like that, um, and uh, all sorts of ramifications there. Uh, what does it mean that we have a new Supreme Court justice just sworn in? Will uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, be expected to recuse herself from uh, <clears throat> any decisions affecting the president who just appointed her, just for one example? We're going to be talking about all of that with Dan Richardson, our legal analyst here on the Dave Graham Show in the second hour of the program. And I'm um, sure that will be uh, some interesting conversation as well, as uh, we also always welcome listener calls. 244-1777 is a local number in Waterbury, and the toll-free numbers one eight seven seven two nine one eight two five five. Let's bring in our first guest. I believe uh, John Walters joins us on the phone this morning. John, it's been a while. Glad to have you back. Well, thanks for having me, Dave. So uh, tell, us, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing and hearing out there on the campaign trail in Vermont. It seems pretty quiet. I mean, yeah. it's it's sort of a, it's one of these years where we don't have a U.S. Senate race, uh, and we, we have a U.S. House race that seems um, fairly uh, uh, unexciting, shall we say. Um, and uh, what, what, what are you, uh, what's your sense of things out there? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, the the national uh, the national races are consuming all of the available space for politics, and um, you know, there's there's not a lot of focus on what's going on in the state. I think it's fair to say, although voters are coming out in droves. You know, we're looking at you know tremendous turnout numbers, but again, mm-hmm. a lot of that is is driven by the national and what exactly that means for the state. We don't know. Um, I wrote a I wrote a post last week about how um, probably almost certainly for the first time in history uh, more money has been spent since since the August primary more money has been spent by candidates for lieutenant governor than for governor. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, which really has to be a first. Uh, unless, well, probably maybe when George Aiken was running for governor in the good old days, you know, he famously spent almost nothing on his campaigns. Uh, yeah, yeah. But you know the 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 campaign for lieutenant governor is 
uh, seems to be contentious. Uh, Molly Gray raised a lot of money, the Democrat. And Scott Milne, the Republican, has been pouring a lot of his own money into the campaign. He's been less successful as a fundraiser, but he has deep pockets. And mm-hmm. the result is that uh, there's a lot of money being spent on the race for number two. And Governor Scott, from from his lack of campaign effort in terms of expenditure, at least, you know, a, a, one has to assume that he's very confident about prevailing. Uh, and you know, Dave Zuckerman, the Democrat, uh, progressive Democrat, uh, is you know doesn't have enough money to make it competitive just in terms of dollars. So there's very little money being spent in the race for governor these days, uh, and a lot of money being spent in the race for lieutenant governor. Yeah, that <clears throat> that is interesting. And of course, the big the big expenditure out there, and we see it if you watch the uh, the evening news, is uh, television ads. Uh, we see a lot of yeah. ads for both. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, cheek by jowl, one after the other, we'll see an, a, a Molly Gray <laughs> ad, and then immediately a Scott Milne ad. And um, so the, That's about the, the only time uh, that the political ads are funny is, is when they when they jam up against each other like that. <laughs> they can be. That is that is true. Um, yeah. And and who do you, who do you think's been doing the more effective advertising between those two? Well, that's uh, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, the thing about TV ads is, uh, like anybody who sells a product on TV will tell you, it's it's kind of like if you're going to compete, you have to do it, but you also have to assume that your money is basically going down a rat hole because you know people really don't wa- don't pay attention much to the messages and you know they're not sitting there taking notes while the ads are on the screen yeah Uh, but you know if you if you have a product a consumer product and you stop uh, advertising on tv then your product begins to fall out of the the rankings uh you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. toothpaste for instance is a budget brand these days uh, and I don't know which is the budget brand in the race for lieutenant governor, but you know it, it, it's something you have to do, uh, and it's something especially you have to do if the other guy is doing it. Um, yeah. So you know we shall see. Um, I I have to think you know in the race for lieutenant governor, I, I have to think that uh, Scott Milne has put together a strong team and has done a a a good campaign, a a tough campaign uh, at times. Um, but, uh, you know, the Democrat has, the Democrat, generic Democrat has such a huge advantage in Vermont, uh, that I have to think that Molly Gray is still the favorite, um, despite her youth and, and lack of political experience. Um, it's, it's just very tough for a Republican not named Phil Scott. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, certainly Scott Milton seems to be trying to, Scott Millen seems to be trying to mold, to uh, sort of market himself as uh, as you know uh, Phil Scott too or something. Um, yeah. And I just you know is is that the strategy he needs because uh, you know there there he sees he sees success here and why not latch onto it? Yeah, I mean Don Turner tried to do the same thing with former House Minority Leader. Uh, he ran for mm-hmm. governor in 2018, and and he packaged himself as you know Phil Scott 2.0, basically the same the same set of arguments that Scott Milne is making. You know, Phil Scott needs a partner of like mind uh, rather than an opponent in the number two slot. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, It didn't work for Don Turner. Uh, Scott Milne has a lot more muscle in his campaign than Turner managed to to put together. And Turner was going against an incumbent lieutenant governor, Dave Zuckerman. Uh, So that's a big difference. Um, Sure. uh, I I also, I mean, uh, you know, the turnout is through the roof, and it's looking like we are going to have uh, maybe an all-time record or certainly a historic turnout. Um, in this uh, election, and generally speaking, that favors the Democrats. Um, when mm-hmm, there's a high mm-hmm. turnout, it's more likely the Democrats will win. Uh, so that's another that's another point in Molly Gray's favor. Um, uh, well, you know, actually, let's let's get yeah. a little refresher here on why that is. Mm-hmm. What what is it about big turnouts that tend to favor Democrats? I mean, is it just that a lot of the Democrats sometimes don't bother going to the polls, or uh, what is the deal there? Well, the, the traditional, the, the conventional wisdom is that Republican voters are more motivated, are, are more tuned into elections, and are more likely, say, to vote in a midterm election in a non-presidential year, which is why you sometimes get the, you know, you get the uh, counter trend in the, in the off cycle. Whether, mm-hmm. you know, it's like President, President Obama would win for president, but then two years later the Republicans would gain ground in the Congress. And yep, uh, yep. that seems to be the case where a lot of Democratic voters are not highly motivated unless it's a race for president. And particularly this year, they are extremely motivated, as we can see by, like, the fundraising uh, across the country, uh, the fundraising numbers for Joe Biden and for uh, Democratic Senate candidates. Uh, the Democratic yeah. voters are definitely engaged this year. If they, <laughs> sometimes they have trouble getting getting into it. Yeah, I, I, uh, it is kind of amazing. <clears throat> I, um, I mean, 2016, you just think about if, if the Democrats were as engaged as they are this year, um, yeah. what, uh, what, what that might have meant, but, uh, it didn't happen. So that's the way it goes. So you, yeah. you, and, and I, I sometimes frankly fault the Democratic Party for not doing more to whip up enthusiasm or, or educate people on, you know, why these issues are important. I, it amazed me in 2016 mm-hmm. that Democrats were not out there basically saying, you know, a president's only in office for four years. What's really at stake here is the Supreme Court. Um, and, yeah. uh, I, the and they didn't do that really. Made that message pay off for them over the years. Yeah, it, it yeah. resonates with their with their base, and it hasn't really sure. seemed to take hold with the Democrats the same way. Um, so, but you know, this year uh, clearly, you know, with Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court, it's reinforced that message for Democratic voters, and you know, the the broad uh, uh, disdain for Donald Trump is driving the Democrats to go to the polls. So. Um, it's looking like a very good year for the Democrats, but we won't know until next week. I yeah, think um, a lot of Republican voters are a lot of you know pro-Trump voters. To be fair, are highly motivated by their guy too, so they are likely to turn out. And, and if you talk to any Democratic strategist, they'll say you know don't take anything for granted because you know the the Republican turnout is probably going to be very high as well. Yeah, that's my impression, and and uh, and and I, and I think that actually, you know, there are an awful lot of people out there who are who have never been um, sort of Democrat through and through or Republican through and through. They are just sort of folks who uh, 
who, you know, occasionally think about politics as in maybe every four years or something, uh, <laughs> and then go out and vote. And, and it seems as though, you know, certainly in 2016, President Trump, uh, performed quite well among, among the lesser involved voters, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. uh, do you have any sense of, of how that's going to break down this year? Uh, well, I think, um, I mean, if the polls are correct, it's not going to be a great night for Donald Trump. Um, I think that, you know, he, my, my sense, and I, I am a, I am a terrible predictor. I, I might be smart about a lot of things, but I, <laughs> I'm not a good gauge for what's going to happen in an election. So take this with a giant grain of salt. But, uh, I think that, you know, Trump in many ways probably maxed out his turnout capability in 2016. And that the rebound is going to favor the Democrats this time around. Um, reacting negatively against something is a more powerful motivator than act, than acting positively to you know for something you like. And uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know it's it's probably I mean you know from what I've seen of the the polls and the people who parse the polls for a living, um, it, it seems like. Trump basically has about a 10 to 15 percent chance of winning, so it's not impossible. Um, yeah, and yep. uh, and you know he he has surprised us before. Let us say that he has a track record, yep. uh, a one election track record of being a surprise. So uh, I, I would take nothing for granted. I would be saying the same thing if I were a Democratic uh, operative or candidate. You know, don't take anything for granted. Keep pushing until until the final day. Let's talk about the uh, the Hunter Biden story for a minute. Uh, this is something that uh, the New York Post broke uh, two weeks ago today, I guess, I, I think it was, uh, in yeah. which they uh, were talking about uh, Hunter Biden allegedly uh, uh, <clears throat> being involved in nefarious business dealings over in the Ukraine, uh, there being an email indicating that uh, he had uh, introduced a, a Ukrainian businessman involved in this uh, energy company, Burisma, with the... Um, with the uh, uh, the vice president, with, with then Vice President Joe Biden, and uh, the this of course was really being fanned hard by Fox News and Breitbart and a lot of the other mm-hmm. conservative media, and but it it never really caught on at all with the uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the major the other major TV networks, and so on. Um, and uh, what, what do you make of all that? Was there was there substance there? Were the were the other media falling down on the job by not picking it up and running with it, or were they um, basically uh, not going to be fooled again, or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, my my sense, and it's only mine, is that mm-hmm. there really isn't anything to it. Um, you know, various media organizations say they have looked into it and found nothing. Uh, you know, it was Rudy Giuliani himself who, you know, took it to a friendly media outlet, the New York Post. Um, mm-hmm. From what I have heard, he couldn't even get Fox News interested in it um, because it was it was iffy enough. I mean, if you if you just take a step back and look at the idea, you know, Hunter Biden who lives in California, goes to a, flies across the country to take his old computers to a computer repair shop in Delaware, 
mm-hmm. you know, and the guy who is legally blind but still is sure it's Hunter Biden. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it it just seems like it's a lot of weirdness. Kind of laughable on its face. It, it's 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 too weird to be true, but it's the kind of thing that people like <laughs> to grab onto and believe. And it's not just you know we talk about like uh, conspiracy theory people on the on the right, but there are just as many of them on the left. Let's go to a listener who's calling, in, and I believe we have uh, Paul on the line from Moncton. Good morning. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, John. Hey, I uh, heard your conversation regarding uh, the whole Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, Burisma uh, potential scandal or hoax, whatever the case may be. Um, just a couple of thoughts about that. First of all, if I remember correctly, it wasn't too many years ago, uh, we had a, uh, a slightly less reputable um, weekly or daily uh, come out with uh, an expose on like, what was it, John Edwards, the vice president in a love child while uh, his wife was dying of cancer. Um, issue. And uh, the reality is, in that case, every, every every news media outlet knew what was going on. They just refused to actually want to run with it. And in some cases, you could say it's because of liberal bias in media. But the reality is, it took them to run it, and actually everything we was brought out was true. Um, you go back to uh, the Watergate years, um, it took Bob Woodward and a few others to really make an expose of what was going on. Um, the point being is that there's more here than I think you guys are uh, letting, you know talking about. And for example, that uh, laptop that you're kind of joking around about, uh, the FBI held on to that for months. They've actually certified that that is his laptop. There's no doubt about that anymore. The emails that are on it are for, are for and from Hunter Biden. Those aren't a debate. Still does not necessarily mean that, that, that this may not turn out to be a hoax, but the reality is there is enough there to investigate. And the fact that certain media outlets don't want to kind of puts into the light something I've claimed for many years, and actually a former professor at Millbury College agreed with um, Dave, is that there is a, a definite bias in media towards the liberal uh, side of things. And um, to remember as um, God, the professor emeritus from Millbury College who did politics, who's on the Mark Johnson show, well, I challenged him about the media and how much it helped the um, Obama campaign. And it says, oh, this definitely was this definitely a help for him. And Mark Johnson was, I think, was shocked when he heard that come from a professor. Um, so the point being is that there is something here. It's worthy of being investigated. I don't know where it goes, but I think the best thing, as we found out in previous uh, you know, political issues, is that it's better to have it out in the light and let people debate it as opposed to simmer and then maybe get blindsided like John Edwards was or, um, you know, or Dick Nixon was or anybody else. Um, let's take the worst case scenario here, uh, Paul, if we could for a moment. And I'm sure. wondering, uh, let's say that Hunter Biden, uh, was trying to, uh, wasn't, it's all true that Hunter Biden, uh, was trying to set up a, a meeting between his, uh, his father and, um, and this uh, fellow whose name is slipping me right now, the Ukrainian man who was an advisor to Burisma. And, um, and is there any, any evidence that the meeting in fact happened was more than a, uh, you know, a rope line handshake or something? Uh, was there any evidence that, uh, any U.S. policy actually changed as a result of the meeting? Uh, talk us through that. Okay, well, I think that's something that would come up in a factor investigation, but I think you need to look at some people that may be involved in that and have them in for conversations. And let's start with this guy, Bobolinsky, a lieutenant in the Navy, um, one of many members of the family who served this country faithfully, loyally. Um, 
what we're hearing from Adam Schiff and others is this uh, belief that it's a Russian uh, Russian hoax and, you know, and trying to meddle in our, our elections. The reality is, according to this gentleman, it isn't. He was there. He actually met. He says he met Joe Biden twice. He had conversations. He was a former business partner of Hunter Biden. He says much of what's coming out is very true and should be investigated further. And to say this is a Russian, is to tell, say that uh, Russian uh, interference is to say that this guy's a liar. So now we have Adam Schiff and others saying that uh, one of our military lieutenant in the Navy is actually a liar. And I find that a little hard to believe. Um, so I don't know what will come out of it, Dave. I don't know whether to invest, whether or not. Joe Biden ever did meet with him. We do know, you know, we've heard the stories about how he supposedly wasn't on his schedule. Well, the meeting they had when they talked about um, uh, um, you know, Flynn and the White House uh, wasn't on the schedule. But we do know that happened now, thanks to uh, some, you know, uh, information that came out. Uh, and we do know that, uh, that uh, Biden's traveled over there, both Joe and Hunter, not together necessarily, but they've been over to these countries and that there were meetings. So we don't know what happened within there. But my point being that there's enough information out there to justify pushing it forward. Now, whether that should happen now or after the election, I don't know. But I don't want to see it die because I think it's important for American people because there is an appearance possibly of, um, you know, of, um, you know, pay for play here. And I don't know if that's an accurate, you know, it actually happened, but it is an appearance. And a lot of things get decided in this country based upon appearance alone. So for that you, when you say you don't know if it actually happened, though, let me let me ask you about that because... Uh, should the media report things that they don't know actually happened, uh, or should they um, uh, should they try to verify, verify things first? Well, um, I would say I would say they should try to verify first. But I would say that if you want to use that standard, then at least half the three quarters of what came out about President Trump has not been, been debunked was put forward long before they verified it. They're, they're just unsubstantiated rumors and leaks from various committees and uh, people within them that uh, turned out to be false. But yet the media went ahead and played those out in the public. And you know that and I know that. So I what, what, give me an example. What what were some of the what were some of the things that the media ran out that turned out to be false? Well, we can we can, well, we can start out with the um, we can start out with the dossier that came from Steele. We can start out the fact that you know the claim was that they had it. You know when they went in front of the FISA court, it was um, you know approved multiple times. Yeah, it was. So you're saying that the dossier didn't actually come out from Steele, or what was false about that? Uh, the fact that everything within it was a lie. Well, okay. I, uh, we know that is because we now we have the person who said the information to steal. And we found out he was not yep. a Russian agent. That's not debatable. All right. Hey, I got to get, but I appreciate the uh, appreciate the call. Hey, um, John Walters has been my guest this first half hour. John, I'm sorry we didn't get much of you on the last few minutes there, but I appreciate <laughs> you uh, spending some time with us this morning. Well, it's a call-in show, so you're doing your yep. job. Yeah. All righty. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, let's go to that bottom of the hour break for some CBS News. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rock and Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV-FM and AM. 
Thanks for being with us into the second half hour of our program on, on this uh, Wednesday morning. And uh, uh, happy to say that uh, uh, we have an interesting guest in this next half hour. I do believe uh, the University of Vermont had some big news yesterday. They announced that the uh, UVM Medical Center and uh, um, Vaccine Testing Center at the University of Vermont's Larner College of Medicine had been selected to take part in a Phase three trial for a COVID-19 vaccine developed by Oxford University, manufactured by the pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca. And um, <clears throat> UVM is uh, uh, talking about being quite honored by being selected for participation in this study, and we wanted to find out more about it, and uh, we have just the right person to talk to us about it this morning. Uh, Dr. Kristen Pierce is a specialist in infectious diseases at UVM Medical Center, and uh, she's going to be leading the study and the uh, and uh, the vaccine. She is leading the vaccine testing center with Dr. Uh, Kirkpatrick, uh, and uh, she um, uh, talks about how UVM has significant experience testing vaccines and uh, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, they're proud to be taking part in this one. And I do believe we have, uh, Dr. Uh, Kristen Pierce on the phone with us this morning. Uh, Dr. Pierce, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for, for asking. I, I have to say, I, I lived in the Valley years ago, and so it was enjoyable. Your hold music provided information about what was happening in the Valley, so it was a nice, kind of like old home day. <laughs> home sweet home. There you uh, go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, uh, a lot, uh, <clears throat> I often hear WDEV described as homey and, and something that a lot of Vermonters who go away and they come back and they tune it in and they like listening because it just brings it all back, you know, and uh, so that's, that's fun, that is fun sometimes. I, I, uh, do you remember spending many hours listening? So yes. Yep. Hey. Um, so so talk to us about this. How 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 big a deal is this? You are one of uh, how many universities in the U.S. going to be participating in this in this phase three trial? Yeah. Uh, so we are probably one of almost a hundred sites across the U.S. that have been asked mm-hmm. to participate in this particular study. There are several vaccines in development, so there are other sites that are participating in other vaccine studies for COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but for this particular study, the AstraZeneca study, we are one of probably about a hundred sites. And the, you know, obviously, a lot of the the bigger communities, like places in Texas and big cities, were sort of chosen first because there is more disease, um, widespread disease in those places. So we were really, really happy to be able to bring this to our community. And um, when you are in a vaccine testing center, in in an academic medical center as you are, is it typical to to be participating in more than one study at a time, or is or is, would you say to the next person calling and asking about this, uh, we're kind of tied up with this AstraZeneca thing right now. Thank you very much. <laughs> you mean other COVID vaccine trials? Yeah, yeah. Uh, generally, the the way that the the system is set up through the National Institutes of Health here in the U.S., m- most sites do one study at a time. So that's what I would have just to keep everything straight and on the straight and narrow and make sure you're crossing all your T's and dotting your I's. So most studies or most centers would not do, you know, a Pfizer study and an AstraZeneca study at the same time. Yeah, because, I mean, part of it is just there would be a, a lot of logistics to manage it and try to keep everything straight. And uh, because this is a big project, it looked like uh, it was going to uh, essentially be a piece of work uh, you expect to take a couple of years um, and it'll involve a large uh, number of staff members. And I'm trying to refresh myself 
on how many participants you're looking for. Oh, I think uh, 250 local volunteers uh, you'd like to have come in from Vermont, northern New York, and New Hampshire. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's correct. The the study nationally is enrolling 30,000 volunteers across the United States. Wow. And each, uh, yes, it's a big, this is a phase three, a big study. And Mm -hmm. each site, so each you know, university or vaccine testing center anywhere in the U.S. is sort of asked to enroll X number of people based on what, how much uh, COVID is in the community and sort of based on the, the general populations of those communities. So, yes, that is correct, 250. The, um, uh, and I'm, I'm wondering, in, in terms of the phase three terminology here, a lot of our listeners, I suspect, are only vaguely, you know, maybe they've heard the term before, but give us a little explanation so that we understand kind of where this is in the process. Yeah, no, that's a great question, and it's such an important thing to, to understand. So when we talk about the develop of development of any therapeutic, so a drug or a vaccine or a, or a device, there's mm-hmm. different phases. And the first phase is what's called preclinical, and that's often when they – learn all they can about the disease entity, about the virus or the bacteria, whatever you're trying to develop something against. And they will often test the first pro- the first um, vaccine or the first drug in animal models. So sometimes monkeys, sometimes mice, wh- whatever that animal model for that disease state is. And that's the preclinical stage. Mm-hmm. Then when it gets to human volunteers, the first one is phase one, which makes it easy. <laughs> and that's really about safety how safe is the drug or the vaccine. And that might involve up to 100 healthy volunteers. Mm -hmm. Phase two, which is the second phase, involves probably 1,000, up to 1,000 healthy volunteers. And that is really about both safety, but more about how effective is the drug or the vaccine. And then phase three, which is what we're in now, involves thousands and thousands of human volunteers. And that's really more looking at gathering additional safety info, but really looking at how effective is the vaccine or the drug at preventing, you know, infection or treating infection, depending on, you know, if you're using a drug or a vaccine. Now, one one thing I was curious about is is the, um, I think I saw in the news release that uh, UVMMC issued yesterday, uh, it looked like this was going to be a two-year process there. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, I mentioned that to my wife, and she said, two years? I thought we were supposed to have a vaccine by Election Day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> um, that is a long time, yes. So all of these studies, so I'll kind of answer that in two parts, and I will mm-hmm. say that all of these vaccine studies are two years because we really want to see how long, what is the duration of protection? You know, ideally we're hoping, gosh, we only need one vaccine for COVID, but it might be like influenza. You might need a different vaccine every year. We don't know that yet. So that's what that that two years helps us really determine how long is the protection against, um, how long does the vaccine offer protection? The, Hmm. The majority of the time that we um, see volunteers and follow up or are calling them is really in the first three to six months, and then after that, it's we see people at year one and then at year two. So it's not a lot of you know you're not coming into the clinic and seeing us every day for two years or every week for two years. Yeah, I see. Okay, um, and and it sounds like it, it becomes uh, sort of less l- less often later or whatever. And, and it's interesting to me, I mean, I guess with all of these, uh, any new uh, f- drug coming to the market, I guess um, they are going to be uh, 
effective for different lengths of time. I think of the tetanus, you know, you need a tetanus booster every, every 10 years. Uh, flu shots, as you mentioned, you get one of those every year. Um, and, uh, and then th- this one is, it, basically it's an open question right now as to how often people might need it. That's correct. That's correct. Yep. All of these vaccine studies that are in development right now are a two-dose series, so you you get two doses of the vaccine, mm-hmm. um, and that they're about a month apart, and then you know, people okay. are followed out for two years. But you're absolutely right. It could be that you need only one vaccine for your lifetime, or it could be something that you need a booster, um, yep. and we, we're trying to determine that. Sure. And, 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 um, how many vaccines are in development now for the COVID-19? It seems like it's a lot of uh, different companies involved, a lot of different universities. And, uh, do you know, have a sense of how many projects like this one are underway? Yeah, there are, I will say there are over a hundred probably vaccines in development, but mm-hmm. they're all in different stages. So there's mm. really four or five that are probably the farthest along in, in clinical development. As in all the four or five you're thinking are ones that are in phase three right now? Yeah, that are in phase three and moving towards phase three, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, um, uh, when occasionally I'll see, you know, ads in seven days or someplace uh, where UVMMC is, is going to be testing out a new, uh, a new, uh, therapeutic and, and, uh, uh, I think they, they offer some kind of financial compensation for participants. Any of that here, or is this all purely uh, volunteer? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, the the sponsors of the vaccine study do offer um, compensation, it, travel costs for volunteers, mm-hmm. so there is um, financial compensation to participate in the study because we recognize that people – may have to take time off of work to come in or you're driving from Malone or someplace, you know, far away. So we yep. try and, and factor that in. So there, def- there is compensation. And uh, to participate in the study, do you have to go to the Burlington uh, Hospital or, I mean, UVMC has some affiliates. There's one here in Berlin, Central Vermont. Uh, there's a, a couple over in New York State. Uh, or or, or uh, can you, uh, you know, I live in Montpelier. Could I go up and get my get my <laughs> vaccine that experiment done at a CVMC? Uh, we would love to be able to eventually do that, but right now the only place that we can have the, we call it investigational product or the vaccine on site is here at the University of Vermont Medical Center. So, One of the things I'm hearing about these vaccines, I'm sorry? No, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I was going to say one of the things I'm hearing about these vaccines is that they have to be um, super chilly. (laughs) You have to keep them at a very, very cold temperature. What is the temperature in this one? And uh, uh, does that present uh, special challenges which might actually... um, uh, direct against the idea of having you go out to your affiliate hospitals or whatever? Uh, this one, that's a great question. And, and there are some vaccines that require what we call cold chain storage. So a great example of that is the measles vaccine. It has to be kept at a very, very low temperature um, hmm. and right up, up, up until almost the time that it's given. This yep. particular vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, is... It's, it's refrigerated right now, and will it can be at room temperature for for about four hours. So we don't wow. have that that issue right now. That actually, it sounds like that alleviates a huge challenge with this stuff because um, I know. Do I have it right? I, I think I do. That some of the other vaccines I've been reading about, I, I thought I saw that they are they are requiring you know temperatures like seventy below or even colder. 
Yes, um, and that is probably for long-term storage. And then when the vaccine is ready to be administered, it's taken out and, and thawed, um, brought to room temperature. So people wouldn't be injected yeah. with very, very cold vaccine. I was, I was, you know, my only experience with something very cold is I've had a couple of spots removed by dermatologists, you know, sunspots uh, uh, with the the um, liquid nitrogen. And man, that, that stinks. Yeah, <laughs> no, I was we thinking, definitely, definitely would not be in, injecting any cold vaccine. It, it's definitely thawed and brought to room temperature before. It okay, well, that's good to know. Yeah, so that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, you were, we're trying to get people interested in actually volunteering for this, so I don't want to scare anybody off unnecessarily, certainly. <laughs> and, and uh, you know that's uh, that is uh, uh, important to know. Um, you, you want people to participate in the study for two years, and it, it occurred to me that, uh, you, and you were saying that you wanted that to happen because you want to you want to learn sort of how how often this vaccine may need to be administered to remain effective in people. Uh, you know, we talked about booster shots and all that kind of thing. Um, is there a chance that it could be brought to market and actually started, you know, we started distributing it to patients before that two years is up? Yeah, and that's that's a fantastic question and, and a question that so many people ask. And yes, that's and that's the hope, right? Gosh, it would be great to have a vaccine for this before two years. Um, mm-hmm. If And it might be that this vaccine is that vaccine. It might be that a different um, pharmaceutical company's vaccine is that vaccine. And yep. it is this the, the idea of well, what happens to people that are volunteering for these studies that are engaged in the study for two years. What happens if there's a vaccine that's licensed before then? And everybody, meaning, you know, people that are way, way above me, at the FDA and the NIH and um, all the pharmaceutical company makers agree that if some other vaccine is licensed, that just the fact that you're in a trial shouldn't preclude you from getting that licensed vaccine. So if if somebody did end up getting a licensed vaccine who was in the trial, we we might not just be able to include their information going down the road to say, gee, we can't look at how effective this vaccine is if you've had another vaccine. does that make sense? But it wouldn't preclude them from getting the vaccine. It just might see yeah. the data. But we wouldn't say, don't, you know, you can't get the vaccine. You have to stay in the study by any means. I'm trying to come up with a good analogy here. My, my mind always goes to sports here. It's almost as if, you know, <laughs> another team scores first. Uh, uh, you can now go and play for that team instead of... Uh, Instead of uh, sticking with this one or something, um, I, I don't yeah, know if that's that really... <laughs> that's that's a that's a good analogy. I'm trying to think of a sport where you could actually do that, but but yes, that that is an excellent analogy. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know if there is a sport where those are the rules, but yeah, <laughs> maybe we'll have to make one up just to uh, right. have a model here. Yeah. Um, uh, and 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 also, you know, obviously there is always. Um, uh, you, you hear part of this conversation of uh, people out there are, 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 you know, in a lot of places are skeptical of vaccines and, and new pharmaceuticals and, oh, my God, is it going to harm me and, and so on and so forth. Um, talk to us about, you know, put those folks at, at ease a little bit if you can and, uh, and then talk to us about uh, the necessity of participation. Um, so I'll speak to the, I guess it's the second part first, the necessity mm-hmm. of participation. So, I mean, everything is voluntary. You know, people have to feel comfortable participating in any any study, any clinical trial. The I think the unique thing that COVID has brought us is that 
this is a global search now. The entire globe is looking for a safe and effective vaccine. And this is, unless for those folks that were alive during the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, none of us except for those folks have seen anything like this. I mean, we're in uncharted waters and the entire globe is searching for a cure. And in terms of the safety, I think it's important to recognize we talked about those phases of vaccine or drug development, you know, preclinical phase one, phase two, and phase three. Yep. And before that phase where the drug is licensed, so the the Food and Drug Administration says, yep, we can go ahead and start giving this drug or this vaccine to, to people in the United States, it has to go through a very rigorous review of um, the scientific data, the safety data, and meet a lot of different standards and criteria to make sure that the vaccine is both effective and safe. And people have said, boy, gosh, this this is sort of moving at a faster pace than we've ever seen any vaccine or drug developed, you know, in the history of pharmaceutic, pharmaceuticals. And I, I again, go back to the fact that it's because there's so much person power, scientific person power, and financial power behind this on a global scale because everyone's searching for a cure. But yeah. the pace well, that I think people are seeing is, is impo- it's important to say that those normal safety checks, there's no cross-cutting, there's no shortcuts that have been taken. The safety All right. is, is... You know what, I think we have to leave it there because oh, we're about out of time. Uh, Dr. Kristen Pierce, Infectious Disease Specialist at the University of Vermont Medical Center, thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's good talking with you. It was a fast half hour. <laughs> Thanks. Sorry I ran off the end. No problem. <laughs> we're going to go to a top of the hour CBS News break here and I'll be back with more of the Dave Graham Show to follow. Stay with us, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Picture Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. We're back, and uh, thanks for staying with us into our second hour. We uh, like to follow the Metro news from CBS with a a conversation with one of our national correspondents. And uh, Steve Dorsey of uh, CBS is uh, kind enough to join us this morning. Good morning, Steve. Hey, good morning to you. Hey, let's talk a little bit about the campaign. Looks like we have uh, both camps are uh, in uh, getting into Arizona. Uh, we have um, yeah. Kamala Harris, and uh, it looks like uh, Mike Pence. Uh, I'm sorry, he'll be in uh, Wisconsin and Iowa. Kamala Harris will be in Arizona. President Trump's in Arizona, in uh, Bullhead City and Phoenix. Yeah. Uh, Arizona's a big prize. Yeah, Arizona's a big prize. It's a key battleground state. Uh, it's a state uh, that Democrats say is tilting more into the blue column because you've mm-hmm. got a powerful candidate, Mark Kelly, running um, for Senate there. He's leading polls uh, in Arizona. Uh, some polls show that Biden is up uh, a few points over uh, President Trump, and that's a, a key prize, I think, for both candidates. Yeah, and it's interesting. Of course, uh, Arizona went for uh, President Trump in 2016, correct? Yes. 
And uh, so that would be a, that would be a change. And uh, I mean, would that be considered to be sort of a bellwether? I mean, there are a few states people are watching as possible flips from 2016. Uh, what are what are a couple of the others? Uh, well, let's talk about Pennsylvania. I mean, this mm-hmm. is um, probably the most important state for the president. Um, this is coal country. Uh, this is fracking country. Uh, he has been making a, a number of trips there. He continues to focus on that. Same with Joe Biden. I think it's leading uh, the number of campaign trips he's made uh, in the general election. So both, uh, you know, candidates are are really going in a full court press in Pennsylvania, and polls show that uh, they're basically tied there. Hmm. Uh, and of course, uh, President Trump won Pennsylvania last time, and then there's Florida, which is sort of a perennial uh, hot yeah. Uh, battleground. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, some polls show uh, the president leading, some polls show uh, former Vice President Biden leading. Um, so it's a competitive race, and uh, at the end of the day, President Trump is going to return to uh, his uh, his other home in um, in Florida. Mm-hmm. And uh, we expect them to pick up the day again uh, there tomorrow with more campaign rallies. The uh, uh, as election night nears, of course, only six days away. Um, there's all this uh, talk about how there may be um, some uh, slowness in counting ballots, especially the ballots that have, have, be, have been uh, essentially cast early by mail or by uh, uh, drop off. Actually, tell me, is, is our drop off and, and personally delivered ballots that come in early? Are those as big, big a concern as mail-in ballots, or are there any differences, or are they all kind of in the um, same pile? Well, it depends on what your concerns are. If, if your concerns are uh, whether or not they're delivered on time, uh, no. I mean, I think right now, um, uh, get out to vote, uh, operatives are saying don't rely on the mail. If you haven't uh, completed your ballot yet, take it to a drop box, do in-person voting, do it on Election Day. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where the concern is, uh, I, I think, right now. And uh, any fake drop boxes popping up around the country? Uh, any places where people are dropping their ballots and then it turns out they're um, <clears throat> going into somebody's wood stove? <laughs> well, there have been reports of, um, you know, fires being set uh, to some of these drop boxes. And there was one reported in the Boston area. Uh, but then hmm. separately you have some mail issues uh, with where they ended up. Um, so, yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of ballots. Out there, and there's yeah. a lot of things going wrong. <laughs> wow, that is, uh, it's, I, I don't know, it's, uh, it's kind of nerve wracking to think, um, you know, will your ballot actually be counted? A lot of people are, are really uh, very, very invested in this election, and to think that somehow the ballot may not be get to the right place and be processed correctly. Now, what about legal efforts to stop the counting at some point? Is that really a thing? Is that likely to happen? How likely do you think? Well, there's so many lawsuits right now. Um, to stop the counting, to start the counting, um, that's, uh, you know, really a, a lawsuit a day. Um, it depends mm-hmm. on the state that you're in, right? I mean, some states, uh, like, like Pennsylvania, you can't even begin processing, unfolding the ballots until Election Day. They come in, early voting, in, in the mail, et cetera. Um, other states, you can kind of get a head start. Um, then there's concerns over how long it should take to count all these ballots. This is all going to be decided in the courts. And um, what's your best estimate of the date on which this election will be settled? 
I mean, listen, I, I think we're still hoping for uh, an indication of a projection on a winner election night. That's likely probably the next day or the next two days because mm-hmm. – uh, the Department of Homeland Security, which helps oversee these uh, election security efforts, admits uh, that there are some states, there are some locations that we don't expect to see a result uh, for, for for a couple of days. And well, um, talk about it's going to be. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It's going to be. It, it's going to be, uh, I think, a tight race to watch for for a while. And a lot of talk about possible voter intimidation in some places. Is that really shaping up, or is that uh, more talk than actual happening? Well, I mean, listen, there's been some more lawsuits against uh, orders to prevent open carry of of weapons um, Mm -hmm. by polling locations. Um, There have been um, certainly voter intimidation that we've seen in Florida, which was connected to a foreign disinformation campaign. So, yeah, there is voter intimidation. And I think hmm. the um, state authorities, the Department of Homeland Security, are working to try to work that out as best as they can. All right. Well, let's hope it all goes smoothly. Uh, regardless of the outcome, you, you kind of want the system to work. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that is, uh, that's something I think everybody should agree on, but uh, who knows. Well, uh, uh, Steve Dorsey of uh, CBS News, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's good talking to us. Thank you. Good talk to you. We have uh, Dan Richardson with us. He's uh, a Montpelier attorney, actually a city councilor as well, but uh, we get him on the show to talk about legal stuff because he's the former president of the uh, Vermont Bar Association, very knowledgeable about all things legal, and uh, wanted to uh, talk with Dan about the the, the, uh, confirmation and ascension this week of uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court and uh, what that could mean for the upcoming election, as well as just... uh, we were just talking with Steve Dorsey of CBS News. He was talking about how there's a new lawsuit a day, roughly, filed somewhere in the country having to do with access to voting and uh, uh, some people arguing maybe too much access to voting or whatever. So let's uh, let's bring in Dan, who's on the phone with us. Good morning, Dan. Thanks for joining us. Morning, Dave. Thanks for having me. And uh, so, give me your your sense of uh, where we are as we were six days from the from election day. Obviously, an awful lot of people out there are voting already. Um, what are you, what are your uh, top? T- well, let me let me put it this way: Do you expect the election to go smoothly, or are there going to be problems? Well, it, it depends on how you define smoothly or roughly. Uh, you know, you have to first of all take understand that. We're talking about uh, not one national election, but 50 state elections, um, mm-hmm. because elections are run at the state level. So each state has a different set of laws and rules governing how uh, voting goes forward, how votes are counted, when votes must be received. Um, and they've been challenged in different ways. So, you know, for example, the um, Pennsylvania has been a hotbed of Challenges, and there's currently one that could alter the way in which votes are counted in Pennsylvania. But if that decision comes down, it's only Pennsylvania. Of course, Pennsylvania mm-hmm. is one of those key states that, depending on its outcome, could shift um, the election one way or the other. Um, yep. So I think what what's happening is we're probably going to see a number of challenges at state levels. Um, and it's going to really depend upon what role they play. Um, it's also going to depend upon what the numbers look like as they come out of the um, 
the voting that night. It, you know, if there is an overwhelming number of votes one way or the other, if, if it comes, as they say, a Biden landslide, um, you know, you probably won't see a lot of challenges. Um, mm-hmm. But if it's close, you know, you could re- you could see again a sort of Bush v. Gore situation where you would have a series of lawsuits filed um, and a number of challenges as well as protests. Um, except this time, I think you would see it in a much grander scale. Um, you know, they talk about the 2000 Bush Gore election where it was really the Republicans driving a lot of the protests, the sort of so-called Brooks Brothers protests. Yep. I don't think you'll see it limited in that way this year. Uh, if there are challenges, I think it will be um, substantial. Uh, so I think it, it really just depends on how the vote counts start to come out, because the minute Pennsylvania no longer matters, th- then you're not going to see a lot of vote challenges. You know, it, it's yeah. interesting. Vermont, for example, had one vote challenge to uh, Condos, uh, Jim Condos's proposal to mail ballots mm-hmm. to everyone, um, and it failed in federal court for lack of standing. And it, that was the end of it. Um, you haven't seen subsequent lawsuits. You haven't seen appeals taken, um, in part because Vermont's not all that important. Uh, yeah. We have three electoral college votes, uh, and if they don't go to Biden, then something has seriously gone wrong. Um, it, you know, it's sort of it's it's like doing a, a vote challenge in West Virginia. It's going to go mm-hmm. to Trump, um, and you could argue about mail-in ballots in West Virginia, but it's it doesn't at the end of the day it doesn't produce anything that moves the needle ultimately and these are you know time and resources being finite i think you'll see their very precise challenges to states where it matters let's go back for a moment to the uh, currently pending litigation in pennsylvania what is that about the currently pending litigation in pennsylvania is about the um the ability of the um the state to accept ballots after the uh, close, after November third, that were pre-postmarked, um, mm-hmm. and these are some of the issues that are, um, you know, becoming central to this, and that you saw with uh, the the uh, Supreme U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Wisconsin, where uh, you saw the court wanting to put the focus on election day, which mm-hmm. is uh, it's it it it's a troublesome legal concept because in in reality votes are never certified on the night of the election you get a preliminary tally that's an unofficial tally um, that we've all relied upon because generally those are accurate but it's not the official tally so you know limiting or requiring votes to be received by november 3rd and saying that if they are not received by November 3rd, that they're somehow less than legitimate votes cast, um, you know, is is a, I would say it is not without controversy and it is not without, it's not a well-grounded concept. 
This is uh, basically the idea, if I understand it correctly, that if if the ballot is not received by the time that polls close on Election Day, November 3rd, uh, even if somebody in good faith put it in the mail some days before and maybe it was tied up in the mail, you know, it's sitting down at the post office or something, if it happens not to show up at the uh, at the election uh, office uh, for the city or the county uh, by uh, close of business November 3rd, then uh, it's not going to be counted. Is that right? That is correct. Um, isn't, you know, the isn't that, that the standard? I was going to ask, isn't that the standard in Vermont and has been for a long time? Well, no. I mean, it's it's the official, you know, and again, it depends on, on the particular law um, that, uh, you know, when a, when a ballot is, is, is received. But no, if an absentee ballot is received after, it may go into the final vote count. Um hmm. Because, uh, but, you know, usually, and, and this is the difference, is that in prior years, it's not enough to change the outcome. Um, yeah. It is not enough to tip the needle, as it were, one way or the other, because we generally have voted in person. This is really one of the first elections that we've had this kind of widespread um, absentee or <clears throat> pre, pre-election day voting uh, on this type of scale. Um, and like anything, it's one of those changes that needed to come, um, and COVID has sort of pushed this forward. Mm-hmm. But it's it's untested, and so some of these concepts are, you know, sort of getting their first first vetting. So you know, it, yeah. it's it's the idea that you know w- what's happening now is the Supreme Court is putting markers down as to how it chooses to define, you know, what is timely, what is untimely. Um, but there's there's no legal reason why a ballot received mailed before November third, mm-hmm. but received after, shouldn't count or is less valid than one that was received on November third. Now there's yep. a certain concept and that really dates back to Bush v. Gore, which is that uncertainty for too long of a period of time destabilizes the legitimacy of elections and. Um, Basically, uh, it's an equal protection issue where the votes that are cast are affected by, you know, these these this uncertainty um, and that there's an interest that the state does have an interest in shutting elections down to an end point. Um, and mm-hmm. what the Supreme Court is doing is saying we think that that moment is Election Day, that anything received after is likely to be disfavored. Um, and of course, that favors people who've voted early, um, well in advance of the election. Uh, that also favors people who choose to cast their ballots on a election day. Um, and it's going to shape how the system goes forward. So mm-hmm. like all things, I mean, it's driven by a certain politics, which is the parties today or the candidates today see an advantage one way or the other. Um, but it is an interesting question as to how we choose to run elections. Do we choose to have this sort of rolling date that comes afterwards, or do we choose to have a very strict cutoff? Um, right. You know, and, right. and it's not, I, I should say, you know, there, there are certain deadlines in courts that um, may be where some of this thinking is coming from, which is, you know, for example, if you want to appeal a case, you have to have your appeal received by the court before the 30th day or it's or it's gone and mm-hmm. saying well i mailed it before the 30th day 
doesn't cut the mustard. Um, yep. You know, it's 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 a hard deadline, and I think what the court is building is trying to create a hard deadline um, to, in some ways, preserve the overall legitimacy. But obviously, if you, uh, there's a number of voting rights advocates that say, well, wait a minute. First of all, there's no official count that's done the day of the election. And secondly, if a vote has been cast before but gets there the next day or the day after, why shouldn't that vote count equally? Because that vote is just as legitimate as another one that was cast and just happened to be received sooner. Yeah, and of course there's this uh, third-party elements involved, which is which include uh, the U.S. Postal Service, uh, which has uh, come under a lot of scrutiny in recent months for uh, uh, allegedly diminishing its speed and uh, and service quality and et cetera. Um, and sure. so it would be through no fault of a voter. You know, I mean, and then, and then the question is, you know, where do you draw the line if the voter gets the ballot in the mail? A month early, and the and it sits at the post office for 32 days. Well, um, should that voter be out of luck? I mean, it doesn't really seem fair, but uh, I suppose right. on the other hand, there is this idea that at some point you actually have to call the thing, <laughs> you know. And uh, right. uh, so sometimes life is uh, life is unfair uh, to, uh, to some degree, and or at least is perceived that way by certain parties. Well. Um, other uh, other questions surround the, uh, the the vote the election upcoming. One of which is, uh, and actually, I just was uh, got a word about this from uh, Steve Dorsey of CBS News a few minutes ago, who was talking about there. And I guess there's some litigation around the country li- relating to: is it permissible for poll watchers to uh, uh, show up at the polls um, <clears throat> celebrating their state's open carry laws? In other words, can they bring weapons? Right. And that that's specifically in Michigan, where the secretary of state up there had banned uh, the carrying open carrying of firearms at mm-hmm. polling stations or near polling stations in their general vicinity. Um, and a state court judge uh, at the trial court level um, granted a preliminary injunction overturning that rule. Um, mm. That's. You know, the, the secretaries, secretaries of state in each state have a wide um, discretion in helping to conduct safe and fair elections. Um, and that power can be used in a number of different ways. In Michigan, um, my understanding is that the secretary of state based his order on the fact that there has been a, a greater degree of hostility um, amongst the electorate that uh, people have reported being intimidated by other people carrying firearms and that people with firearms have have stood in places that have been intended to intimidate. And mm-hmm. so he created a rule simply saying, you know, you can, you can have your guns, you can carry them, but you just can't carry them within this vicinity. Same reason under similar powers and reasoning as uh, if somebody shows up to the election day wearing, you know, a Trump MAGA T-shirt, uh, they have to take it off or they're not allowed into yep. the polling place. And the same thing with a Biden-Harris uh, T-shirt or, or whatever um, political yep. affiliate T-shirt. You can't wear it, um, which sort of goes back to the old rule, you know, don't wear don't wear the rock band's T-shirt at the concert you're going to, um, <laughs> which was seen as, as completely uncool back in my day. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. You wait till afterwards. 
Metallica. I do remember. I, I I never really got the origin of that rule, but I guess uh, it, it just was a rule. I don't know exactly yeah. who, uh, who wrote it, but there you go. This one's anyway, a um, better it, grounded. Yeah, this one's better grounded in the idea that we don't want people influencing. We don't want people affecting the free choice in elections, and we don't want um, you know we don't want people to intimidate. And uh, you know whether they're you know left, right, whoever, we, we don't want people interfering with the, the right to vote um, and the right to decide freely at the at the polling place. You know, you're free to campaign outside of a perimeter, but once you come into that sort of sanctum, the idea is that there's neutrality, you do your civic duty, and then you can return to the political fray. Yeah, I mean, I, and, and I, I mean, I, are we talking about people following somebody into the booth and, you know, even behind the curtain and this person who's following the voter has a gun? Or what are we talking about here? Well, I mean, the the ban was broader than that. It was don't bring firearms to polling places. So even yeah. if you if you came and you did nothing but just cast your vote, but you were carrying a sidearm, the mm-hmm. idea was that you wouldn't be allowed to do that. I don't think it was intended that type of person. It was really intended to broadly cover, you know, a group of, you know, say militia people who showed up and stood in front of a inner city Detroit polling place. Yeah. Um, didn't necessarily say anything, didn't follow people in, but stood there with their with their weapons as a sign of intimidation, which was done in other situations. Hey, uh, we got to take a brief bottom of the hour break here for CBS Newsman and a couple words from sponsors. And uh, Dan Richardson is my guest. We'll continue our conversation in just a couple of minutes, folks. Stay with us. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. My guest is Dan Richardson. He's a regular legal analyst on the Dave Graham Show here in WDEV, and we're talking about the upcoming election and uh, any uh, strange bumps in the road that might occur. Um, we see all sorts of speculation out there about uh, possible armed poll watchers looking to intimidate people from voting and uh, other uh, other such activities going on, as well as... Uh, sort of broader and more institutional efforts to maybe stop the ballot counting at certain points, certain junctures in the process. Um, Dan, uh, I'm wondering what you think about the role of the mass media and its tendency to want to call. You know, usually on election night, there's frankly a big competition among the major news organizations to see who can call the election first or even individual, you know, Senate races in various states and so on, or call an individual state in the presidential race. Um, I, I don't know that, that what, what all that is going to look like, uh, this, this election, it, but to what extent might that influence, uh, the, the sort of the way it unfolds legally, do you think? Well, I don't. I don't think it. It ultimately has an impact on on the legal um, rulings. There's mm-hmm. certainly a public perception um, and a certain amount of pressure 
um, that comes to bear on that. And I, I, you know, I have read articles where a number of news media outlets are, you know, vowing to take a more restrained view of it. Um, you know, one of the things that's really going to be affected this year is with so many early ballots cast, uh, exit polls are likely to be less accurate than they were in prior years because there are fewer people coming out of the polls this year. Um, and they may skew one direction or another. Mm -hmm. That that um, is, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting, uh, point that, uh, uh, I was talking with somebody about yesterday in the sense that, you know, usually when exit polls have been done, you kind of expect you're going to get a fairly representative mix. I mean, that's the, that's the aim of the whole thing is to get a, a representative mix of the voters in, in the particular precinct that's being, uh, uh, that has the exit pollers there. And, um, in this case, there's been a lot of talk that, uh, um, it, that the parties are breaking down to the uh, to where the Democrats are are more likely to vote early, and the Republicans are more likely to vote on election day. And so, if you're just talking to people who are coming out of the polls on election day, you are uh, logically going to get more Republicans. Um, I don't know whether that sets up any any uh, any influences. In other words, if you know if people are saying that. Boy, uh, the exit poll had Trump winning easily, and then Biden wins. Uh, that could be that could create some strife as well. It seems I don't know, um, but again, all, so much of this is completely uncharted territory. We haven't tried doing it this way before. We haven't, but you know, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, if you go back to 2000, um, there there were was a lot of public pressure that was put on. Um, the the process so it became sort of heated you know and i refer to what they they colloquially call the brooks brother riots where you had you know a lot of republican activists protesting outside of courthouses protesting outside of polling places as they were doing recounts um yep yep and and that that affects the process certainly in a recount process you know it can become a, a pressure cooker and i i've represented people in in recounts and you know, that can get very, very heated because, you, you know, it is an open public process where, you know, a certain amount of pressure can have an impact. And so there is a certain incentive for people to, you know, uh, protest. But I think yeah, agree. at it's least pressure. from a, a legal perspective, you know, ultimately, you know, we like to think and I like to hope that courts would take these kind of decisions thoughtfully um, and based on the law rather than what the polling is or what the <clears throat> public rioting in the street might be at any given moment. Let's uh, let's bring in a listener who's on the line, Marsha from Barry. Good morning, Marsha. Hi, morning. Good morning, Dave, and morning, Dan. I have three hopefully quick and easy questions. Okay. And uh, why don't I give them to you all at once? Is, is that better? Or... Okay, I'll give them to you all at once. Hey, Marcia, can you turn your radio down? We're getting a little bit of interference, I think, if you have oh, it up. Oh, you can uh... hear it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes, I can. Hang on. That, yep. Um, well, How is that? Marcia's, uh, that? 
I think that's yes, better. So is that okay. okay now? Yep, yep. Um, okay, right. your, your three questions. All right. Um, number one, I'm wondering if it was argued or if it was um, written in the case that had uh, the uh, Wisconsin case mm-hmm. um, that said that, that, that perhaps there is a grace period be- between voting day, the, uh, the, the third, and the day that votes are certified. Because it seems that the certification date is the ultimate date. And if the ballots were postmarked prior to, they ought to be able to come in. And that that would be analogous to a grace period in other other situations. That's the first question. Okay. The second one is, I, I, um, Bush, Bush B. Gore. Mm-hmm. Um, said that it was not to 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 be cited as 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 precedent in further cases, and Dan had mentioned it, and then Cav Cav Kavanaugh apparently wrote a con- concurrence which cited it, and that I thought was a no no. And then the third, then the third question had has to do with with standing. In all of all of these cases, where different where different where different groups are suing to fix rules of the election, and they're then dis, 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 dismissed. Is the candidate the all the all? The only one who has the standing to sue in these kind of cases. Okay, let's start with the first question, which was in the Wisconsin case. Uh, is there a grace period between uh, election day and the date the votes are certified? Uh, Dan, what, what can you tell us? Yeah, no, in the Wisconsin case, the the ruling um, was whether or not. Um, they could be counted afterwards. Uh, a lower Wisconsin court had said no. They can't. Any ballot received after November third cannot be counted. The Pennsylvania case, um, which did not have a lower state court ruling, it was a slightly different posture, did allow for ballots to be um, counted if they were received within a three-day grace period following November third. Um, so the Wisconsin, and, and I don't know what kind of grace period the Wisconsin Democrats were seeking, um, but the court there said no, no, no grace period whatsoever. Didn't anybody bring up the idea that in an argument that the certification date of voting really is the final date? Yes, I mean that's that's. The basis of a lot of these arguments, and, and certainly it's it's a reasonable argument to make. Um, but you know, as the the five three decision from the Supreme Court in the Wisconsin case indicated, um, you know that wasn't sufficient. That the ballots need to be received to have that initial count on November third, in in their view. Um, and and as I said before, you know this is not they're not citing well established. Uh, voting law, they're they're really making policy choices um, in the moment, um, and they may be for good reasons, um, or they may not be, um, depending upon your um, your your view of it. But um, that's really what's what's happening here. 
Uh, let's go to the second question. Uh, Bush versus Gore. Uh, Dan, I, I seem to have a hazy recollection. Maybe you can short up a little bit for me uh, that uh, that the decision did say it should not be used as precedent. Yes, um, uh, and it was it was probably the only time I think Justice Thomas has ever uh, affirmatively used the equal protection clause um, in his <laughs> in his history, um, but. Mm-hmm. Um, it does say that this is not this was a one-off and not intended for precedential value. That said, um, that doesn't stop people from using it all the time, um, and that's the problem. You know, in Vermont, for example, um, there are cases that are known as the rocket docket. They're a three-justice panel, and they say at the top may not be cited for precedent or limited precedential value. Um, yep. But that doesn't stop any lawyer I know including myself, from using those decisions if there's good reasoning embedded within Full them. confession. <laughs> no, I, I, I shouldn't laugh, but, I mean, I, I see what you mean. It's, it, it's, no, uh, it's uh, laughable. Uh, but, <laughs> well, but, I mean, it's a difference. Precedent means that it's binding. It doesn't yep. mean that it's of no use. Sure. So if Kavanaugh yeah, yeah. uses a decision that, that, you know, the reasoning from a decision saying, you know, this decision may not be binding on us, but this reasoning is solid, and I... I support this reasoning and believe it should be extended to this situation. There's right. nothing so stopping him from doing that. So it's suitable to argue, but it shouldn't be cited as the reason for a holding versus the dicta, which may, which may, which may be what happened with Cap with Kavanaugh's opinion. Very well put. Mm-hmm. Let's go to this last one if we can. We kind of have to move it along here a little bit. Uh, but uh, standing candidates only, or uh, are there broader in- interests out there, Dan? No, there are broader interests. Um, voters have a certain amount of right. And actually, candidate standing is somewhat limited, which is candidates can challenge the process, but candidates do not have an interest in holding office. So their standing is only limited to making sure that the election process is run in a fair manner um, and uh, challenge any particular um, uh, functions of the process itself. But, you know, they, they have limited standing, which is that, you know, once those equal protection kind of issues, fairness issues are, are exhausted, they don't have any type of property interest in holding office or any right to challenge the overall system um, to that uh, and uh, there is limited standing on that. Um, but oftentimes you will have voters um, have standing as well if this impacts their ability to um, cast a vote or have their vote counted. They would have standing. Thank you. Welcome. Got it. Okay. Thank you very much for the call, Marsha. Three three interesting questions uh, uh, and uh, and solid answers there. Uh, and uh, uh, Dan, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, in in the in the case of the of uh, the fifty separate state elections, um, is it time for there to be some kind of a national commission which uh, comes up with sort of best practices and uh, and develops, uh, you know? A, I don't think people really want to have a single entity managing our elections nationwide, in part because, um, you know, such a thing might be hacked or something. There's a lot of the, the people talk about some security advantages of having uh, 50 separate elections. And, of course, Jim, Jim Condos talks all the time about how really there's very little 
if nothing really that's that's online that can be hacked about the way Vermont counts its votes. And so, um, you know, so, some of that some of that sort of separation uh, might be helpful in terms of security. But uh, on the other hand, I, I just wonder why and whether it's fair that the rules are different in Ohio than they are in Pennsylvania or or Vermont, different from New Hampshire or whatever. What do you what do you think about that? Is there is there any reason to be looking at that and hope to have it happen or what? Well, I know that the National um, Conference or Association of uh, Secretaries of State often try and develop best practices. I think part of the issue is that um, it's voting is a very different experience from state to state and even within a state, depending on where you live. Um, what works for Vermont might not work for mm-hmm. um, a large city like Philadelphia or Boston. Um, you know, we use these dot matrix printer um, voting machines that look like holdovers from uh, the early 80s, um, even though they're, they're they're newer than that. But they uh, and they work great. They're they're really wonderful scanning machines um, and they're accurate. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know they they are unhackable because they're not online. They're analog. Um, but you know that would be a disaster yep. in a large city. I think part of the problem is is that. Um, you know, there there is a sense about voting being a local act and any type of imposed national standards, you know, may lose the buy-in of the local community that ultimately has to support their voting practices because they're the ones that are administering it. Um, and one thing we talked about yesterday that that is uh, you know always of interest to me, uh, and I think some I hope some others as well, is the role of the electoral college. Um, you know, uh, written into the Constitution, uh, had its uses certainly in the uh, early going of this republic, but uh, uh, more recently we are. Uh, We've seen twice now in 16 years uh, the electoral college uh, basically defeat the will of the popu- of the of the majority, uh, giving you know, giving the uh, the White House to the person who did not get the popular vote majority. Um, a lot of pre-election speculation here that really w- the only way President Trump wins is if he pulls off the same sort of trick again, and, uh, w- winning in the electoral college. Um, and you know who knows if that'll be the case. Maybe he'll win the popular vote, but uh, but there is an awful lot of speculation, and I think actually strategizing by Republicans uh, in in that direction. And the and so that would be the third time in 20 years that the, that the electoral college um, uh, went afoul of the of the will of the majority. Uh, and the, and all these after more than a hundred years of it not happening. Is that a sign of, um, <clears throat> shall we say, uh, a mechanism that is showing cracks with age or something? Um, well, it's 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 a reflection of the very unique circumstances um, that we live in right now with a very uh, polarized electorate um, and one that's largely been polarized along geographical lines um, rather than, say, class lines so much. Um, these are, uh, so it's, it's exploited an inherent function of the electoral college, which is to ultimately hold down large population centers power and to elevate 
uh, more rural area power. Um, and right now, the way the electorate is lining up is we have uh, a population in urban and suburban areas that far outstrips rural areas, but not enough so that it's overwhelming yet that if a rural coalition um, is able to come together, it can, through the Electoral College, defeat a popular um, uh, ballot winner um, because the, those votes, you know, so the hundred a million votes in California that went to Clinton uh, are effectively redundant. Um, but the, the 10,000 or 20,000 votes in Wisconsin are, are dispositive. And, you know, that's a function. And certainly if that continues, uh, it's going to be a problem um, because I think you can only keep the popular vote, um, even in a republic, down for so long um, before there is pressure um, and unrest that generates. Because a government that's fun, uh, you know, that's founded on um, the vote of a minority ultimately entrenches that minority. And I think some of the more controversial portions of Trump's um, administration have been things that have entrenched min- minority issues or minority rule. Um, and mm-hmm. that that's been that's been a problem. And if that was to sort of continue, you know, you would reach a point, a breaking point and civil unrest as this started to break out in certain sectors um, would continue and the electoral college would get called into. But I think it's one of those things that if it cures itself, we won't be talking in 10 years about the electoral college. It'll just be one of those quirks again that it was before 2000. Now, the, the norm uh, in, in most states, I understand, has been for uh, the Electoral College to um, essentially assign all of the state's electors. Uh, a couple of states are exceptions to that, but uh, but <clears throat> the, I'm talking about the, main, the vast majority of states assign all of the state's electors to the winner of the popular vote within that state. Um, this year there is talk in some places that if the popular vote uh, is not... Um, you know, does something that the state's leadership doesn't want to see, um, that there is, there are possibilities of actually having the, uh, the electors told to, uh, go the other route, right? Right. The so-called unfaithful elector scenario. But, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just don't see that as a, um, a, as being sustainable, um, it's one of those. It, it's one of those things that that sounds nice on paper, but would likely be struck down by a court. Um, hmm. You know, the un uh, the idea that um, the electoral college does have to sort of reflect the either by by law the uh, popular vote of the state, or you know, one of the the sort of hacks as they call it of trying to get around the electoral college, which is a number of states have adopted the national. Um, popular vote initiative, mm-hmm. which is, yeah. um, you know, and so that in that respect, um, you know, if you were to have um, electors that would cast, you know, their electoral college vote, not for who their state or if it's Nebraska or Maine, their district um, won, but who they chose, um, I think that would that would quickly be shut down because I, I think that's a bridge too far, um, even for yeah. 
you know, a group that's looking to sort of entrench minority rule. Um, Dan, I'm afraid I'm going to have to yeah. leave it there because uh, we are about out of time. But I uh, really appreciate your uh, participation, as always, this morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Dan Richardson is a uh, former president of the Vermont Bar Association, very active attorney in Montpelier, and a frequent guest on the Dave Graham Show. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, That's about it for today's program. Uh, join us again tomorrow morning. Meanwhile, stay tuned again for uh, Bill Sayre, Common Sense Radio, and have a good afternoon, everybody.